0: As Al already alluded to in his prayer this morning, justice is is prevalent in discussions in our society today in one sense, you could say we 're infatuated by it, everything from the amount of true crime podcasts that are downloaded and listened to every week, the idea of <clears throat> true crime on TV and murder mysteries and Every every story that we look at, every story that we read has a central theme. If it's it's good, it has a central theme of good versus evil, which inherently means there's some struggle for justice. There's some struggle for right and wrong, and the tension is which one of those is, is ahead in the race at the certain time. But justice has also taken on a lot of other meanings in our culture over the last few years, hasn't it? We have all kinds of different justice. We have social justice and racial justice and economic justice and environmental justice and legal justice and moral justice, sexual justice. Anything important to me, justice. That's our culture. And the average person, if you ask them, justice for you, but grace for me, That's the way we live, isn't it? And we're prone to that as well. We're prone to want justice for other people, and especially when we've been wronged. But if we've done the wrong, we want grace instead. So many of those kinds of justice that I just mentioned are not justice at all. All they are is people with ideas to push and a reality that is different than the reality that we live in, a truth that is small t, not capital T. Now, I'm not saying there are not injustices that we have to deal with in all of those categories. There are. But for us as Bible-believing Christians, what guides us is capital T truth, the nature and character of God. Amen? That's what drives us as we understand what is just and what is not just. And that begins with understanding that our God is a just God. He establishes justice and he is just and all of his purposes work together for just living the way we're going to see justice in our in our text today a very a prominent theme in this 42nd chapter of Isaiah, the way we will see justice, it is an understanding that all of creation, all of the cosmos, if, if justice is, would be obtained, that everything that happens happens in accord with God, his character, and his purposes. Because if everything that happens happens according to his character and his purposes, we know by definition it will be just and justice will be accomplished. Emma is the name of a man. Emma is a man who fled in the late 90s um, on foot with his family from the Democratic Republic of Congo. The the, the government had fallen apart, a, a, a ruler that had reigned for a long time um, was overtaken, the government fell apart, the country went into chaos, and he fled. And as he was leaving and before he left, he saw many atrocities committed um, to friends and family. It was just horrendous. That's why he chose to leave and take his wife and his family with him on foot. They ended up in Uganda as refugees, and their life wasn't much better there. But while he was in Uganda, he walked into a seminary where in the, in the town that they were um, being, being housed as refugees, and he inexplicably felt that God wanted him in ministry. And so he enrolled in that seminary. And there was a man, the man telling this story that I read give this account, he said he met with him one night in the cemetery, seminary. Well, sometimes they are cemeteries, but this was a seminary, not. Um, and, and he met with him, this man that I, I read the, the story um, from, his name is Mark Maynell. He met with him in the library one night and and Emma just broke down in tears because of all the evil that he had seen, all the evil that he experienced. And here's what he said. He said, you know, Mark, I could never believe the gospel if it were not for the judgment of God because I will never get justice in this world, but I couldn't, couldn't cope if I was never going to see justice done. Do you hear the power of that statement? We can feel that at times, can we not? We look around and we see unjust things being done, things that are opposite of the character and nature and purposes of God, and we feel like we, we have no control over it, which we don't, and we feel sometimes like if God doesn't act, we're going to come undone. But if we know capital T truth, we know that God has acted, will continue to act, and he has a plan that all injustices will be corrected. Now we may have to wait for that time. We have to wait for the time that God deems to do that. And they will not be perfected until Christ returns. But if there wasn't that promise of all evil being overcome, then we would be overcome we would become overcome with sorrow and sadness. So this idea of justice in our society is prominent, and there are many injustices that need to be addressed. But we, as Bible-believing Christians, with our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are the ones who need to lead the discussion on justice. We are the ones that need to lead the discussion on what justice is and where true justice, the most important justice, stems from. And that's what Isaiah wants us to know. Isaiah 42 begins one of four servant songs in this section of Isaiah. Now we'll just take care of a couple of things right at the beginning. There are some people who would say this first servant song is about the nation of Israel or about Cyrus. Now, we've already met Cyrus, right? Not by name yet, but we've met his purpose. God has introduced what he intends to do with this future coming king to set his people free to go back to their homeland. And we will meet him in more detail in just a couple of chapters. So some people say this passage, um, the first nine verses of chapter 42 are dealing with Cyrus. Cyrus. Some people say that it's the nation of Israel. Remember, the nation of Israel was called God's servant just in our text last week. So we need to know that as we read our Bibles, especially in Isaiah, especially chapters 42 through 49, there are, or 42 through 55, I should say, there are many references to servant. And in this section... The section we're in now, 42 through 48, what we're going to see is all but one mention of the servant deals with Israel. In 49 through 53, all but one mention of the servant deals with the Messiah. If we keep that rubric in mind, we will see the contrast that's brought to us through this whole section, the contrast of Israel as God's servant who fails, and out of Israel comes God's servant, capital S, who will not fail. And this is also the driving force between the, the, the contrast between the idols and the one true God. And we see all of this in our passage today. So what our hope is today is that when we come before these verses, the first nine verses of chapter 42, is that we will learn why this is important to us. We will learn how it helps us to understand our triune God and the times in which we live. And we will learn how it brings us comfort, encouragement, and strength in our walk. Because these are comforting verses These verses ooze with comfort for those who are willing to wait on the Lord for their salvation. And that's who we are. We've waited on the Lord. If you're in Christ this morning, you waited on the Lord for your salvation. And now we eagerly and anxiously await his return where our salvation is consummated. It's completed. It's all finished and we're spending eternity with him. In the meantime, we have these words of comfort of what? In Isaiah's day will come, and our day has come and has effects for all of us. Stand together and read our text here in Isaiah 42. Beginning in the first verse of this chapter Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. Now I want to just do a little bit of contextual work here, not long, just a few moments, to put Isaiah 42 in its context. Because remember, we we have In chapter 40, we moved into a new section of Isaiah, didn't we? Clearly a different um, tone and a different message from the same God to the same people. But now our gaze has been pushed forward 140 or 50 years to God's people in exile in Babylon and giving them a message about their exile and what to expect and this section is full of this constant competing, not, not in reality, but in the Lord's courtroom between the one true God and the idols that people serve. And our section here continues that theme. I want you to look, if you will, at verse 24 of chapter 41, just back into what we, we looked at last week. You see that section begins with, behold. And then verse 29 ends with that same section, behold. And look what we're to behold. Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. That's the idols. And an abomination is he who chooses you. Now look at verse 29. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their words are nothing. Their metal images are empty winds. And if you remember in this section, we, we saw of God calling the nation's idols into his courtroom and say, Tell us not about what, the, what happened in the past, but tell us what the meaning of those events were. If you are sovereign like I am, then you would not only know that you called those events into being, but you would know what purposes would come from them. And, also, and there was silence. Remember? There was nothing. And then he says, Now tell us the future things. Tell us what will happen so that we might sit back and fear you. So that challenge has been made. Now verse chapter 42, look at how chapter 42 begins. Verse 1 begins with, Behold. So we have another behold. Behold the worthlessness of idols. Behold the, the, the fact that they are empty wind. And that word wind is important for us. Empty wind. Now behold, now he's bringing himself again as his witness against the idols. So the context tells us what he's about to tell us is his um, ob- uh, being able to accomplish what he challenged the idols to do. That's what he's about to do. He's saying, I've challenged you and you can't, so you're nothing and anybody who worships you is an abomination. Now I'm gonna tell you what I have done and what I will do so that you can fear me and what my purposes are. Now look at verse nine in chapter 42. This is how we know it all sums up and ties together. Behold, the former things have come to pass, the new things... I now declare what I've challenged you to do and you couldn't, I'm doing because I am the sovereign one. I am the one worthy of glory. I am the one worthy of praise and you are nothing before me. You may fear when you see me act and build idols and nail them down and hope they don't fall over but I am the God of the universe. I am the one to be worshiped. And that's what he's bringing forward. So this, we don't want to take this first servant song and completely rip it out of its context. God is still proving that he is Yahweh. He is the creator God worthy of glory, worthy to be worshipped, and he's proving it by telling what he intends to do through his Servant, capital S. Now, there are four servant songs that we're going to come into contact with over the next few weeks. That's okay. Isn't it great to have children? Isn't it? Isn't it a wonderful thing? Um, it's just a wonderful thing to have children among us so we don't, this is great Um, they're growing up listening to you sing listening to you pray listening to you submit yourselves to the word that's what our children are growing up watching you're having an effect on them even when they cry because they don't want to be here (laughs) and you know that sometimes you want to cry because you don't want to be here Okay, back to the servant song. What a joyful interruption. There are four servant songs that we will see. And I'm taking the course, and I think there's no other way we can do this, that Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 9 speaks of the Messiah, speaks, speaks of the Servant, capital S, and we'll, we'll draw our attention to why that is so as we go through. But there are three others that we will find in, in this section, not only 42, 1 through 9, but 49, chapter 49, 1 through 7, chapter 50, 4 through 9, and then the one we're familiar with, one that we try to read in our congregation at least once a year, if not more, um, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Those are all the servant songs. They are prominent in the New Testament. Many of the ideas that are in the servant songs are picked up by the writers of the New Testament. So they're important for us. So with that bit of background, let's look at our text as we hear three messages from Yahweh concerning his servant Three messages from Yahweh concerning his servant. The first message, Yahweh speaks about his servant. This is what we see in the first four verses. And we see four things that he will tell us. First, his relationship to Yahweh, the servant's relationship to Yahweh. Look at verse one. Behold, we've already talked about that. We've seen this word throughout Isaiah, meaning it's something that we're, it's supposed to captivate us and and gain our attention. And he says, Behold, my servant. Now, servant is used in many ways in the Old Testament. I mean, Abraham was, was God's servant. Moses was God's servant. David was God's servant. Israel is God's servant. Cyrus is going to be God's servant. But this is servant with a capital S here. And as we, as we develop what this servant will do and what this servant's mission is and how the New Testament quotes this, we'll see that we're talking about Jesus himself here. Behold my servant. And then we have this wonderful phrase, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. So this is a servant who is chosen. Marked out by God. God has chosen this one. Now, we learned last time that Israel was chosen as well, right? There's a sovereign move in this idea of being chosen, this idea of being set apart for God's glory. We see this throughout the scriptures, and we can say that we are ones, uh, the, the, the believers today, are chosen. We are elect, and we, the Ephesians tells us that we are elect in Christ, Our election is in Christ. It's not just by itself. It is Christ the elect one, and we are elect in him as we're placed in union with him. So this idea in in Isaiah 42 is important for us, that he is not only God's servant, but he is also chosen, set apart, marked out by God for a specific purpose. And when we see this purpose, this purpose to to deliver us from the bondage of sin, to have justice be meted out throughout the world, spiritually with regard to sin, but also physically with regard to God's purposes when Christ returns, that it's wonderful that we see that he is the chosen one and we are chosen in him. But look what he says. He says, whom I uphold and in whom my soul delights. So there's an upholding. When God sends anyone on mission, he is upholding them. He is empowering them for this. And this is even what he does for the Messiah. The Messiah is upheld by the, by the Father. The triune God upholds himself. As he sends him into the world on this mission. But there's also a strong affection. You see those words? In whom my soul delights. And this is, how, this is what is said of Jesus in the New Testament at his baptism and at the transfiguration, right? This is my son. Listen to him. In whom I am well pleased. This is the father's assessment of the son. Remember, the triune God, father, son, and Holy Spirit exists forever and exist in perfect harmony. Before Christ came into the world, after Christ ascended uh, to the right hand of the Father in his incarnate form, there is unity in the Godhead, and there is a perfect fellowship. There is a perfect love among them, and that's what's being brought to us here. This is my servant. I've chosen him, and I uphold him, and my soul delights in him. So right now, Whoever this servant is, we're thinking, this is a blessed person, aren't we? This is the the creator of the universe saying these kinds of things about his upholding of him and his affection for him. But he also says, I have put my spirit upon him. So he's upheld. Yahweh delights in him and the spirit, Holy Spirit, is upon him. This is what we see happening at Jesus at his baptism the spirit descends upon him. The spirit is given in the Old Testament as well, right for leadership positions, it's given in a different way, he is given in a different way in the Old Testament, given for leadership positions, for creative positions, for all the craftsmen who did all the designing of the temple. It's the spirit rests upon kings but the Spirit rests upon all of us when we come to Christ. And so when we see the Spirit resting on the servant, we're seeing, oh, this is the same Spirit that rests upon us because we are in union with the Christ upon whom God's Spirit rests. And so this is the empowering. This is is how this happens. I want you to turn. It's already been read, but I want you to turn back to chapter 11. Back to chapter 11 of Isaiah. Another another prophecy about the Messiah, this one, the the righteous reign of the branch. Look at eleven verse one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the root, from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. This is all the Holy Spirit's provision to this branch that will come, the Holy Spirit's provision to Jesus himself. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, what this is telling us is this righteous branch will not exercise justice and judgment in the same way that men do. Because he has all knowledge, and he is empowered by the father through the spirit to be able to see things with total truth and total righteousness and he will always make righteous decisions because he himself is righteous he is called in righteousness and his character is righteous and back in chapter 42 all of this is what's being said to us we've already learned it in chapter 11 We can realize that those things said about the spirit's endowment of the branch now import into our understanding of this servant because Yahweh has put his spirit upon him. And we're going to meet this whole phrase again in chapter 61 when we get to the end of the book. Someday, when we get to the end of the book, we'll see it toward the end of the book as well. So Yahweh speaks about his relationship The relationship of the servant to Yahweh, but Yahweh also speaks about the servant's mission. Look at the end of verse one. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So he will bring forth, future tense, justice to the nations. So our eyes are, just like we have been all the way through Isaiah, our eyes are moved back away from just the nation of Israel to all the world, right? But when we see the word nations or the, the coastlands, what we're meaning is all the rest of the world that are not Israelites. And so this justice through the servant will reach everyone. It is a universally available justice that will be brought by this servant. And he will do this. He will bring forth justice. I want you to look. We're going to get to these passages very quickly. But he will bring forth justice. Now look at verse 3 on the third line. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now look at the second line of verse 4. He, he will not grow faint or discouraged till he has established justice. So this one that is coming, that Isaiah says is coming, this servant, has a mission And this mission is to is to establish and uphold and offer this justice to all the world. Now as we go through the servant songs, we are going to see this mission of the servant expanded and focused in on some areas, expanded in others. So this first servant song wants us to see this. This servant is spirit endowed and his mission is to faithfully bring forth justice and he will not tire or weary until that is done. Now, it doesn't mean he'll lay down and take a nap after that. It just means he's never going to be thwarted in his mission. Now, we're going to see some of these ideas brought forth in chapter 49 and 50 and 52 and 3 uh, and expand it as our servant, who is now the anointed one who is uh, bringing forth justice, ends up in chapter 52 and 3 to be what? The suffering servant, the one who suffers to accomplish bringing forth this justice. We'll let those servant songs develop on their own. So Yahweh speaks about his servant, his relationship to Yahweh, his mission, but he also also tells us what this servant will not do, what he will not do. Look at verse two. There are seven negatives here that are all positive things, okay? There are seven things that he will not do and a couple of things that he will do. Look at verse two. He will not cry aloud, lift up his voice, make it heard in the street. He will not um, break a bruised reed, quench a faintly burning wick. He will not grow faint. He will not be discouraged. Those are the things he's not going to do. And aren't we thankful that these are things that the servant will not do? This is where we find great comfort. Look at verse two. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Why is that important? What, What do we know about that? In Isaiah 53, when we see that servant song of the suffering servant, we're going to read verses like 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is the way he was led away. In Matthew chapter 12, where this passage is quoted, it's the longest Old Testament passage that Matthew quotes in his gospel. This passage is quoted and says that Jesus acted in a certain way to fulfill this passage, to fulfill what was written in the prophet Isaiah. And it was when he healed the man with the withered hand, and after he healed him, the Pharisees started making plans to come against him and destroy him. And he told the people that were around, say nothing to people about me. This was to fulfill what was written in the prophet Isaiah because it wasn't his time yet. Now, there's a reason that he does this in the Gospels, right? It's not his time. It is not his time to go to Jerusalem yet and to face the cross. We see it in several of the Gospels that there are turning points in the Gospels where now he's heading to Jerusalem. We specifically see this in the geography of Mark, where there is a turning point where he heads to Jerusalem to do what the Father has called him to do. But there are times that he's not ready to do that, and so he, he wants his ministry kept silent in certain areas that one of those times was to to fulfill this passage. That's why we know that this passage is ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah. And I think it's about the Messiah because of the covenant language we're going to see in a moment. So the first three things he will not do. He will not cry aloud, lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street. This is a humble servant. This is the opposite of what Cyrus probably did when Cyrus overtook Babylon. Uh, this is opposite of what kings do when they, when they have the parades and they're on the white horses and they're, they're trumpeting their victories and they're having people bow to them and, and such celebration that sometimes they have the servant whispering in, the, in their ear, you are merely human, you are merely human, because such human um, adoration is given to them. This is a humble servant. This is a sermon whose whose personality is brought forth in humility. And when we read through that, we could go to dozens of passages in the New Testament, couldn't we? About the humility of Jesus Christ. We think of places like Philippians chapter 2, where he is. His humility is brought forward as he pursued the cross. And he did not pursue equality with God as something to be grasped. And we are told that we are to be the same way. Have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus We see this as he actually went to the cross. The humility, he could have called down legions of angels, and yet what does he do? He obeys his father. You see, the Messiah, the incarnate Jesus Christ, has one mission, and that's what the father tells him to do. We cannot read the Gospel of John without seeing this so clearly, can we? We, 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 Every time we read anything in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus submitted to his father. Whatever his father has sent him to do, that's what he's carried out. That's what he intends to carry out. He can even pray in the garden that if this cup could pass, please let it happen, but your will be done, he says. That takes humility to be about the business of someone else. And so this is a Messiah who comes to do what the father tells him to do. This is the servant who is humble, not about for his own gain, but to be obedient to his father. Look what else. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. What comfort is there in those words? a bruised wheat reed, probably better crushed reed. I think it's a stronger, if you've ever been around reeds, I think I heard Robert talking about it on your farm and growing up that you can, you can just bump up against those sometimes and they may not die right then, but they can't take that. They can't take being bruised. They're eventually going to die. But if you do anything strong to a reed, it just, it just buckles. You can't use it for any support or anything. This is us. We, we we are the bruised reeds. We are the, the 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 flames that are about to go out. The faintly burning wicks. We are the ones who are. Uh, we feel discouraged. We feel incompetent. We feel like the world is aligned against us, and we're just. It just takes one little bit that somebody bumps up against us, and we lose all of our strength. If it's not placed in someone else. And so this someone else is one who is not going to do any more damage to a bruised reed. It's not, even though the flame, the, you see the picture here, right? Weakness in the reed and a flame that's almost burned itself out. And there would be no more light. There'd be no more life to that. But yet this servant, this servant that the bruised reeds and the faintly burning wicks are safe in this servant's hand. I don't know about you, but there's a comfort in those words that I need to remind myself more often than I do when I feel overwhelmed. Maybe you never feel this way. I'm not even seeing a lot of knotted heads. Do you feel this way? Do you feel at times overwhelmed by the world, overwhelmed by your own sin, overwhelmed by what you see going on? And we have to remember that Jesus loves us, bruised and faintly burning. Jesus came to us when there was no life in us, I mean, our our wick wasn't even lit yet, let alone being out, and he still dies for us. And there are times that in our life we feel this way. I read this story this week that was amazing to me. It it fits the culture, I I guess. But in 2009, on a bridge in China, there was somebody who was a wealthy man who had lost a lot of money, and he placed himself on this bridge. He was going to jump off and he was out of reach of the rescuers and he was threatening to jump off that bridge and commit suicide. Five hours, traffic was backed up, no one could cross the bridge and and everybody's standing around watching, is he gonna jump, is he not gonna jump, are they gonna be able to get to him? And all of a sudden this 60 some year old man, I think he was 66 years old, he comes out of the crowd, breaks through the line where the, where the crowd was kept back behind, and he walks up to the guy who's on the bridge, true story, walks up to the guy who's on the bridge, shakes his hand, and pushes him off. Just pushes him. Here's what he said. I pushed him off because jumpers like him are very Selfish. Their action violates a lot of public interest. They do not really dare to kill themselves. Instead, they just want to raise the relevant government authorities' attention to their appeals. So he rationalized it and pushed him off. You think that burning, faintly burning wick, bruised reed, was safe in that man's hands? Now, thankfully... There was an end to a story. They had already put this this air uh, mattress at the bottom underneath, and he was wounded, he was injured, but he wasn't killed. He survived his fall. But isn't this the way we're tempted at times? We're tempted to even think this about somebody else who's suffering. Just get over yourself. (laughs) You ever thought that? Maybe you never have. I'll confess that for us. But Jesus is not like that. Here's Jesus. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the servant, and we are safe in that servant's hands. Now, in our context here, this is all about his bringing forth justice in the way that he will do this. And we have to understand that the way he's bringing forth justice in this passage, first and foremost, is a spiritual justice. Let me ask you a question. When you came to Christ and your sins were forgiven, did God just wink at your sins? He did not, did he? It would have violated his character and he would not have been God. It would have been a useless exercise for us to come to a God who is not holy in, in, a, in such a way that he could just wink at sin and act as, life it, act as if it wasn't there. He punishes his son. The way justice is brought about is because the one who forgives us placed his wrath on one who died in our place. That's the way justice is brought about. The, justice was satisfied when Christ died when we come to Christ, we're coming to him because of the work that he's already finished. And that's what's being shown to us in this Old Testament language. This is the justice that's before us. Now, there is a, lot, there is a much further reach than merely your sin, isn't there, in this passage. And this is what's being brought to us in more clarity. Well, not only he, what he will not do... Well, let me finish the knots here because these are important in verse 4. We are faintly burning wicks. We are bruised reeds. But look what it says about this servant. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. Now, I wish the ESV did a better job of showing us that the word for discouraged is the same Hebrew root for, for bruised in the ESV or crushed. We are bruised and crushed. He will never be bruised and crushed. This is the idea. We are discouraged and powerless. He will never be powerless. He will never be thwarted from his mission because he's never going to be found in in that condition. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. So we're moving in from the what he won't do to what he will do. Look at the things he will do. He will establish justice on the earth and he will not grow faint or weary until the coastlands wait for his law. Now this is why I think it's a little bit wider even, but it's a result of what Christ does for sin. Because as people come to Christ, they are then carrying out the mission that God has placed them on. they, We, as people who have come to Christ, are the ones who are pursuing holiness. We are the ones who are obeying the scriptures as we understand what God would have us do. We are the ones who pray for the leaders that are appointed over us. We are the ones who have certain um, guidelines in our relationship and how we're going to deal with each other. We are the ones who give of our best to, the, to our master in everything that we do and all of our public-facing um um, task that we have in our job and everything else we are world changers when we are submitted to christ and we are the people that the law comes to we we are the coastlands that are mentioned uh, we are the, the bringing forth of the just, justice of the gentiles because that's who we are we're the people that received it we are not the israelites we are part of the people who the word comes to And so as we live our life, our life is forward-facing to a world that needs to see the wisdom of God in our lives. And as the coastlands wait for his law, they're waiting for the law to show them the servant, to show them Christ, so that as they come to Christ, they are living in such a way to bring glory to God because he doesn't share his glory with anyone else as we will see later. But our second and third... um, Task of his uh, mentions of the task of his mission, he will bring forth justice, he will faithfully bring forth justice, he will establish justice. This uh, we don't have time to go into all the different uses of this Hebrew word, it has so many different shades of meaning. It's used over 418 times, I think it's 418 times in the Old Testament, and it means different things in different contexts, all having to do with right all having to do with right behavior, right judgment. And so what we're seeing here is through this servant's work in in offering himself, which we will see later as the servant songs develop further, how he accomplishes bringing forth justice. Here, this is a world rightly ordered according to God's character and his purposes. We could even say his law. As the nations are awaiting, the coastlands are awaiting. What God intends to happen, as He carries it out in His people, this is the bringing forth of justice in the world. Well, Yahweh speaks about His servant, but Yahweh also speaks to His servant. Look at verse five. Now, verse five is a is a transition between. He's going to give another reason why we should listen to what He says. Thus says God, Yahweh, and this is the grammar here is telling us that of his uniqueness, that this is the only true God. That's what this is telling us. Thus says, the only true God, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and who comes from it, and, and, and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. He created the earth and anything the earth brings forth, literally the earth's offspring. Now this could be the ves- vegetation and plants that come from it or it could be the people that are created from it as God created Adam from the dust of the earth. And I think in context, we're talking about the people because then he says he gives life to the people. That's what he's meaning. That's what the words are meaning in the second half of that verse. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. God is the one who created the world, created humankind, and gives us life. Therefore, we should listen. It's another, it's another statement of his worthiness to ground everything he's saying about his servant as one, and, and also what he is able to tell about the past and the future to ground this all for us. So he identifies himself, but he also outlines his servant's mission. Look at verse 6. I am Yahweh. You'll see that same phrase in verse 8. So these are, these are parallel words. Um, um, phrases here in verse 6 and 7 and then 8 and 9. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. Now the uses in verse 6 are singular. So we're, he's talking about the servant now. He, Yahweh has called his servant in righteousness. Now that doesn't just have to do with the, the the air that he's breathing calling him in righteousness. It means according to his purpose. Because everything God does is righteous because that's his character. And so he's sending the, the, the servant on mission, and he's doing it. He's calling him for that. Remember, we've already seen that he's chosen him. So he's chosen him, and he's called him forth in righteousness according to um, God's plan, according to God's purposes, according to God's character. And we know as we fill in the blanks from the rest of the servant songs in the New Testament, according to the servant's character as well, because the servant is God himself. I am Yahweh, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. There's an expansion on what was said in verse 1. I will uphold you. So I'm sending you on mission, but you're going out in my power. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons, from the prison those who sit in darkness." So there's the picture that we see, even the spiritual reality. We've already seen this language earlier than in Isaiah, and we'll see it again in the Gospels as we, as we move through these servant songs. And the second part of Isaiah, we'll see all this language in several different places in the Gospels. But I want to draw your attention to the idea of the covenant, because... He says, I will give you, servant, as a covenant for the people. And then he describes what will become out of that. A light for the nations, open the eyes for the blind, bring out the prisoners from the dungeons, the prisoners for those who sit in darkness. I want you to turn to um, Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to look at just one verse in chapter 8 and a couple of verses in chapter 9. Now, the idea here is that the covenant... How is a person a covenant? Well, in this sense, he is the inaugurator and the mediator of this covenant. Think of what we do every time, and we'll do this next week, or two weeks from now. What, What we do in the Lord's Supper, and we read those words, this cup is the covenant in my blood. So Christ is saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And remember, blood is that, that, that term that tells us about death. That in Christ, when he comes and he lives and he dies and then is risen again, he is ratifying that covenant by his blood. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's what we're thinking about, just what was being said to us in Isaiah 42. Look at Hebrews chapter 8. We could, we could read two chapters here, but we're not. Look at verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's the old covenant. Now look at verse 11. After this discussion on the old covenant and the, and the works in the temple. But, what, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal, eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is what's being talked about in Isaiah 42. As this servant comes, God is making him a covenant. And you can look right there in verse 6. I will give you servant as a covenant for the people. This is for the nations and for his people. They're all included in this. This is the every tribe and tongue and people and nation we read about so clearly in Revelation that the blood of Christ extends salvation, extends the mercy of forgiveness to people from all over the the world and every tribe and tongue and people and nations. And this is how it's described here in verse six. A light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness, and that's that language of saying before we come to Christ, we are in total darkness. We're not, we're not just able to see something and move toward it. We're in darkness. We are in prison. We are in dungeon. We are completely bound up in chains. And that when Christ and his work is applied to our life. We're set free from that. And that's the language that's being used. We're not just talking about it's going to come true for the captives in captivity, right? It's going to con- come true for those who are in Babylon. They will be set free. They feel like they're in a dungeon now. They cannot return home. They, can, they don't have a temple to worship at. That will be true. But this is so much more than that in the language of the New Testament. This is so much more than that of our spiritual eyes being um, open. This is, what, this is what John Wesley was talking about or Charles Wesley talked about in his hymn And Can It Be. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off my heart was free. I rose went forth and followed thee. This is the act of God in the life of one who is going to be saved. And God makes the servant the the mediator of that covenant. He makes him a covenant for everyone who will come to him. So this, even though the language is not clearly telling us that this is Jesus, the Messiah, the scriptures interpreting scripture tell us no one accomplishes this except Christ himself. So this is the servant's mission in verse 6 and 7. He is to free the captive free the captives of sin. Now let me, let me just remind you what I've said already that when this happens our lives make a difference in the world around us. And the gospel that we now preach makes a difference in the lives of others, which will make a difference in the world around us. If you're following any of the debates on Christian nationalism, if that's a new word for you, don't look up the debates. You don't even want to get involved in it. But if you're following any of these, one of the things that I think everybody can agree on is that when believers preach the gospel, families, churches, communities, towns, cities, states, and nations change. We we have to be able to agree on that. And if God says, when my church preaches the gospel in the rest of 2023, that Cabot, Arkansas, and then the state of Arkansas will come, 85% of the population will come to Christ, we don't have to care anything about nationalism. We care about the gospel going forth and God doing his work. Because this is what he intends, and isn't that what we should want? We preach the gospel every day. We're preaching the gospel on the front lines of those who are looking for justice in all the wrong places, to quote a country song, sort of. (laughs) We preach the gospel and that happens as God sees fit. So will justice cover the face of the earth? Well, eventually, justice is going to cover the face of the earth. We can disagree about whether that's a promise to happen now, before Christ returns, or whether it's a promise that will be totally fulfilled when he comes back. And we're all working in the same direction, amen, because this servant obtains the justice. He brings it forth, and he establishes it, and he did not weary all the way to the cross, did he? All the way to the cross, he had strength. He was, his wick did not go out. His reed was not bruised. He never grew faint. He accomplished everything the Father said that he would accomplish in the humble way that the scriptures said he would so that you and I would have life. So when we preach the gospel and people come to Christ, that infects other families, that infects other governments, that infects other cities and other institutions. And that's what we want to see happen because that's why the servant came. Well, finally, Yahweh speaks about his servant. Yahweh speaks to his servant. Finally, Yahweh speaks to the people, or maybe we should say about himself, because he's speaking to the people in verse 8. Another, I am Yahweh, saying, I am Yahweh, that is my name, I am the covenant God. I am the faithful God, the one true God, the creator God. Everything that you've learned about me in Isaiah, we can put in here to the people that are listening and to us. This is the God we're talking about. And my glory I give to no other. No one else is going to take care of your sin. No one else is going to do the things that God has promised to do and them come forth and be true. And he will not share his glory for another. This is why when we come to Christ, we come humbly. We come nothing in our own hands. If you're here this morning and you've never actually come to Christ, you've heard about Christ, but you've never come to Christ, you've never submitted your will to him, your life to him, you are coming in the same way Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross humbly, on a mission submitted to his father and he could have called down all the angels in the world to stop it you and i come to him realizing that everything that he did on the cross his death and his resurrection and and his ascension and all the blessings that are in him only come to those who humble themselves before him repent of their sin and trust in him and everything that he's done so this is this is the way we come to christ we don't We don't do anything that gives us glory because it's all him. He's the one who's orchestrated it. He's the one who has called us. He is the one who's predestined us. He is the one who has given us his his spirit. He's the one who's regenerated us, given us the gifts of repentance and faith so that we can come to him. And it's nothing of our own. If you have come to Christ or are coming to Christ today and saying, I'm holding on, I'm a pretty good person. I think you'll let me into the club. You will be rejected Because Christ is the only perfect one. And we have to be in union with him. So it's humbly repenting of our sin, repenting of our own righteousness and coming to him because he shares his glory with no one else. When people come to Christ that way, God gets all the glory because we do nothing. It's all him. And this is the way he works because he's God. If he had to share his glory with someone or something else, then maybe they would be God. Or at least a co-God. god There is no other God. But then he returns to the idols, doesn't he? Verse 8. I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. This is where he's keeping us in this context that he is speaking through Isaiah. This is still the challenge to those idols and to those who would be abominations by choosing them. And he says, I'm not sharing my glory with any carved idols. And he has the behold statement to end this section like he has ended the last three. Behold, the former things have come to pass, Everything that I've told you before, and I've told you why it's coming past to pass the creation, the calling of Abraham, the the deliverance from from uh, from Pharaoh, uh, the calling of the fathers, the promises that I made to Abraham—all of those things have happened, like I said they would, and they've accomplished what I'd say they will they would have accomplished. And new things I now declare. And this is what he challenged the idols to do, right? The new things I now declare. This servant I'm talking about has not come yet. But he will come. He will come and we'll see him come in Cyrus as a type of the true servant. But then this servant who is given as a covenant to the nations, he will come just as God said. He says, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And what's the implication? So you worship me. That's what he says. I'm telling you this will happen so when you see it, I'm the one who gets the glory. And this is what happens in the gospel for all of us. So why is this important to us? Because you and I are often without strength. We are often without hope as we look at the world around us. But we've come to a Christ who is always with strength and his strength is made perfect in that weakness. And we come to a Christ who never loses that strength, and he's never discouraged, he's never bruised, he's never crushed, except on the cross as the Father said he would be. And that's what we were learning in the last servant song. It was the will of the Father. It was God's will to crush him for us so that we would have life. So why is it important? Because it is the encouragement that Jesus is exactly who the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures tell us he will be. He is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our praise. And that's where we end. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your your full and powerful word. Thank you for bringing it forth by your spirit. Thank you, Lord, that the words that you have given us, you have superintended throughout the centuries for us to hear and believe and be encouraged by. So this morning, we pray, Father, that you would remind us that even when we're crushed and bruised, Jesus has died in our place and he sustains us and his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Thank you, Lord, that there's none that that give him or you any counsel concerning all of this. You have planned it before the foundations of the world and carried it out as you have said. And we are a people who worship you and bow before you because of these truths. We thank you, Father, for your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.